We had a song about Mary. The prayer of the day was centered around Mary. That text was on Mary because this is the time of year when the church commemorates and remembers the sainthood of Mary. And by that, we mean uh, the special discipleship that she offered and witnessed to in stories of Scripture. That special discipleship being chosen to bear uh, Christ is what also this John chapter 6 text is that we've been in for a number of weeks. Uh, Mary offers a perfect example of the kind of access that God uh, avails God's people of. And so, with uh, Mary's story in mind, we also continue into chapter 6 of John, the 51st verse. I am, Jesus says, the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like that which your ancestors ate, and they died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. Word of God, word of life. Thanks be to God. So, I'm not one who typically goes to many giant concerts, uh, but I have been to a few. The last one I went to was at the big stadium in Minneapolis where we saw U2 on their Joshua Tree 2017 tour. They were commemorating the 30th anniversary of the release of their Joshua Tree album, which even at the time made me feel really old. Amidst that sea of people, I'm guessing there were something like 40,000 people there, a thought crossed my mind, and I've had this thought before at other big events, usually sporting events, can you imagine being at the center of attention of that many people? Like, I preach to a few hundred tops, so I have a clue of what it feels like to have lots of people looking at me, some listening to me even, but tens of thousands, I just, that's beyond my imagination. And what's stranger yet about that whole scene is that they all know you and yet you know almost none of them. That's, it's just a weird thing. What kind of access would you give your throng of fans? Like if you were very famous, I was looking up what it costs to gain backstage access to different musicians because they can actually put a number on how much they would charge in order to give access. One of my favorites, uh, musicians anyway, has always been Ben Folds. He's going to be at the Sylvie in Madison on September 19th, so I looked it up. If you want to participate in a meet-and-greet portion of his show, when only a fortunate few get to ask Ben Folds anything about music, you can for an extra $200. The Jonas Brothers, I'm told they're a big deal. For a backstage tour and a meet-and-greet with them, it's $575. What do you think that kind of access to Taylor Swift would cost? 
At one concert, I found it to be $5,000. She does give a portion to charity, though, so. What kind of access would you give people? What about if you were God? Like, what would you make people pay? What would you make people do? Maybe what would you make people believe? If you were God, the source of all life, the source of forgiveness, the source of truth, what would you require for a human to have access to you? I mean, you could be as remote as you'd want to be, right? There have been lots of very smart people, actually, who have assumed that God would choose to be quite remote. Isaac Newton, David Hume, Charles Darwin, deists like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, many have held the idea that God must be like a watchmaker, which is a metaphor that maybe isn't quite so helpful to us who are now wearing digital watches. But in case you don't know, old mechanical watches, they would be full of lots and lots of little gears and wheels, very complex. They had to be wound as watches didn't used to have batteries, of course. So the analogy that many made was that God is like a watchmaker, the architect of a very intelligent design. The creation is like a watch that God built, wound up, and then just kind of let it go. Let's see how the earth and the seas and its creatures and these humans that I've made, let's see how it goes. In this vision of God, I've always imagined God like popping some popcorn, sitting back in a rocking chair, and just kind of being entertained or angered or whatever. But the theory goes that whatever God felt, God felt from a distance. In part, it's how many people were making sense of the suffering and the pain and the evil they experienced. They thought God must be distant because otherwise wouldn't God ensure that no suffering happened? that all pain was healed, that all evil would be defeated. If God is good, God must be distant because bad things are allowed to happen. In this watchmaker model of the relationship between God and humanity, well, actually there isn't a relationship. God is simply beyond and then we are left to our own devices. Those who ascribe to the watchmaker God idea would not have liked probably didn't like the Gospel of John very much, especially the sixth chapter. Because John 6 is all about the relationship God wants with each and every person on earth and the relationship God wants with the whole of humanity. This is the chapter when we learn that if we're asking the question like I've already posed it, we're looking at the access to God question in completely the wrong way. The question is not, How much must we pay or how much must we do or believe to gain access to the source of all life, forgiveness, and truth as though God is some distant destination that can only be achieved through a lifetime of perfection or self-discovery? This is the chapter when we hear Jesus trying to make it clear that it's not God who builds any barriers to hold us back or keeps any distance between us and God. It's us who wall ourselves off from God. And the good news today is that those walls that we build are an illusion. They're fake. Any wall that stands between you and love, any wall 
that stands between you and forgiveness, between us and unity, is a lie. The truth is we have access to all that is good, to all that is God at all times and in all places. Now, being a Lutheran pastor, I know I can't just say that because I know that sounds nice and maybe it's who we want God to be, but as my preaching professor would ask at this point, where's that in the text, preacher? So I'm going to dig in a little bit because this text is really weird. <laughs> I don't know if as I read it you thought, that, huh? Jesus tells the crowd, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I'll give for the life of the world is my flesh, which understandably makes the Jews dispute among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? It's a question that gets at the heart of the problem that many of us and lots of people who are not here have. John starts his gospel by, by claiming that faith and eternal life, they're possible only because the Word became flesh. You know how John 1 starts, the Word became flesh. But what does that event in the existence of God, this eternal Word becoming human, how does that affect me? How does that connect with me? How does that affect my access to God or the faith I have or don't have? How does it affect my eternal life? that God became flesh. As my seminary professor Brian Peterson asks, how is it that we centuries later, without direct experience of Jesus in the flesh, how do we receive this God-made human life? Like, if the Word became flesh, is this gift from God, how do we receive that? How do we connect with it? Like, somebody could buy me tickets to that Taylor Swift concert in France as a gift, which would be really nice of them, very generous, but I'm here in Wisconsin. <laughs> How would I receive that gift? So Jesus says, eat this bread. I'm the bread. The bread I will give is my flesh. So that's the answer? How do we in the 21st century receive the God-made human gift that is the Word made flesh who was Jesus? How do we receive this gift so that our lives are changed, so that our deaths are transformed? The answer is that we have to eat the flesh of the God-made human? We have to eat His flesh? Like, weird, gross, confusing, right? What is He saying? Which is why the Jews start to dispute among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So you might think that Jesus would at that point then start walking his language back a bit, clarify that he's only speaking in metaphor. There has to be distance, of course, between God and humans, and this talk of flesh eating is on one level gross, but on another level it's religiously offensive, much like Mary bearing Jesus is offensive to many because people want God to be God and us to be us at a distance. I mean, that is the religious leaders at the time of Jesus. That's, that's where they're working from is this understanding that God is God. These Jews are not used to being allowed to say the name of God. They share stories of people being blinded or killed for looking in God's direction. Eating the flesh of the God-made human 
It's not just an icky metaphor. Much more than that, it's an offensive religious idea. It would be God too close, God too intimate, God too much. Back off, Jesus. Maybe we'd prefer God to find a rocking chair and pop some popcorn and just stay over there. Seeing that these religious leaders are offended by the God-too-close idea makes Jesus, of course, lean in further to the God-too-close idea. He doubles down and really begins with some obnoxious language. Not to further gross them out, although it does that. He doubles down on his inappropriate words in order to obliterate the walls these leaders want to keep up between God and God's people. Jesus hears them questioning him, and so the next thing he says is, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. So he adds the blood part. Ew. And you get how obnoxious Jesus is actually trying to be even more clearly if we'd be reading the original Greek. Jesus had been saying, you must eat the bread of life with a word for eat, like we'd say time to eat dinner. That kind of way that we'd use the word eat. But here, once he wants to refute the offended Jewish leaders, he actually, Jesus changes the word he uses for eating from how we'd say time to eat dinner to a word that would be better translated gnaw or munch. Dr. Peterson says that the, this Greek word trogo, it's a graphic word of noisy eating the sort an animal does. Like that kind of eating. The audibility of the eating, however, is not the most important point. It's an eating that is urgent, desperate even. It's eating as though life depends on it because it does. So then Jesus just keeps going on and on about this gnawing we must do desperately and with urgency. And he says, again, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life or as I said a couple of weeks ago, life beyond life. That's how I think of eternal life because timelessness doesn't make sense to me. But a life beyond life does something more, something higher, something without the imperfections, pain, and suffering that we know. Anyway, he says, Then I will raise them up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood, he just won't stop using these icky words. I can just imagine everyone's face like someone who just won't stop telling punny jokes. Those of you who like dad jokes might know this feeling of people looking at you like, oh, please stop. Maybe this is just me that gets this. But anyway, he keeps using these words. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. And there it is. Jesus is the true food and true drink that when consumed creates a life beyond life connection that changes your now and your forever. How do we receive this gift offered so many centuries ago, halfway across the world? By participating in a meal that draws us into the life beyond life that Jesus lives right now. Yes, Jesus lived on this earth and died on the cross almost 2,000 years ago, but we Jesus followers believe He rose from that death. He didn't stay dead because He couldn't stay dead. He was the first to start living a life beyond life, 
and does so right now. And in the midst of his life, he instituted this way for us to join him, for us to connect to him, to his current life beyond life. And when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we realize the walls we think are there between God and us are lies. Full access to the Creator, Redeemer, Sustainer God is ours, which still offends many. How does it sit with you to know that after death you'll have the same access then to God as you do today? You can participate in the life beyond life that God has in mind for you today. Next week will be our last week in John's sixth chapter. That's when we can think more deeply about how we participate and contribute to this life beyond life in this world now. But for today, it's a day to simply celebrate this incredible good news that the chasm between God and us has been bridged through Jesus, that we have access to all that is good, to all that is God, at all times, in all places. Thanks be to God. Amen.